the National Archives podcast series, Heralds and Heraldry at the National Archives, by Adrian Ailes. Well, whereas generations of heralds have carefully sifted through the unique records and collections of the College of Arms, and those like the late C.E. Wright have studied the various heraldic manuscripts of the British Museum, now in the British Library, this has not yet been done for the National Archives. I suppose because so many of our records were created or inherited by officialdom, namely the medieval royal administration, various government departments and the central law courts, one would not expect to find much heraldic material here in a state archive. In fact, there is a positive cornucopia of heraldry concealed within these walls, especially if we take uh, heraldry to include the role of the heralds, those responsible for the design, granting, recording and protection of arms. And I hope I've got that right because one of them is sitting in the audience this afternoon. And incidentally, I'm using the term herald uh, this afternoon to include all three ranks of officers, officers of arms, Kings of Arms, Heralds and Pursuivants. And just in case uh, you might want to know, by heraldry, I mean the use, the systematic use of certain patterns and devices normally placed upon a shield and handed down unchanged from one generation to the next. So where does one start when faced with over 100 miles of documents and no single record class devoted to the subject? The online catalogue brings up over 1,300 hits, if you put the keyword herald with a little wildcard asterisk beside it uh, in the search engine, and many of those hits refer to such well-known rags as the New York Herald and the Sydney Herald. A more reliable approach is to begin with the National Archives' vast collection of seals. When the Victorian medievalist John Horace Round wrote his seminal article on the introduction of armorial bearings into England, he based his arguments on this seal, which he found in the then Public Record Office. It is the equestrian seal of Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Hartford, DL 27-47, and can be dated to the 1140s, the very dawn of heraldry. Round demonstrated that Gilbert's shield depicts faint traces of chevrons, those are upside-down Vs. These chevrons make it one of the earliest known true coats of arms in this country since these same arms were passed down through the Clare family, making them hereditary, and therefore not just random haphazard shield decoration. Perhaps the most famous heraldic seals in the National Archives are the two almost identical sets once attached to the copies of the Baron's letter to the Pope. In this letter, dated 1301, the English barons refused to admit the Pope's jurisdiction in the thorny matter of Scots' independence, and the reference is E26-1. And this is the double-sided seal of Ralph de Monthemer, taken from the letter. He's the chap who secretly married Edward I's daughter and was promptly thrown into prison before the king pardoned him. Notice the obverse on the left is equestrian, a knight on horseback, as we saw in the seal of Gilbert de Clare, whilst the reverse on the right is a shield of arms, a seal design known as armorial. The National Archives also holds the armorial seals of women, bishops, merchants and towns dating to the Middle Ages and beyond. This is the very fine seal of Elizabeth de Say dating to 1450, reference E327-620. She was the widow of Sir John Montgomery. Her shield is impaled. In other words, her husband's arms and her arms are shown side by side on the same shield. 
and the supporters on either side of the shield are crocodiles with knotted tails. When looking at seals on a document, do remember that sometimes people borrowed seals when they did not have their own on them. This seal, depicting, as I'm sure you can make out, three rabbits, is attached to a receipt dated 28th of April 1304, drawn up by Sir John de Seagrave, and can be found in E101-10-18. You might therefore think that it is Seagrave's seal and arms, but he has actually borrowed the seal of his Velatus, his esquire, to validate the document to which it is attached. There are three ways of looking up heraldic seals in the National Archives. The first is the card index in the Map and Large Document Room. This contains about 12,000 seals, or at least the cards for 12,000 seals, probably less than 10% of our collection. Though many of the important heraldic seals have been catalogued, and all the heraldry from these cards included in the new Dictionary of British Arms, which covers the period up to 1530. The second means of reference to seals in the National Archives is the two printed catalogues of personal seals in the then Public Record Office. And these have superb descriptions and illustrations, and basically if you see them in a second-hand bookshop, then buy them. Um, they're worth their weight in gold. And the third method is the printout in the map room of the computer database of seals in DL25 and 26, Duchy of Lancaster deeds, and LR14 and 15, land revenue deeds. 3,000 images of the seals in DL25 and DL26 will very shortly be available for free in the Documents Online section of the National Archives website. And fingers crossed and touch wood, etc., etc., when I say soon, that should be tomorrow morning. Well, seals really deserve a talk in their own right. Uh, this is the magnificent great seal of John de Warren, Earl of Surrey and Strathurna, dating to 1346, reference E42-244. And it depicts the Earl on horseback, bearing his checky arms on his shield, uh, his aylets, so his shoulder plates, they're not baby aylets, but shoulder plates, um, and horse trapper. But don't neglect the much smaller seals. My final seal is only the size of a penny and belonged to a lowly Velatus or esquire, Roger de Murdisven, in 1303, reference E213-13. However, it provides our first example of a man of sub-knightly rank using a coat of arms. The arms depicted, three bars, each charged with a small bird or martlet, are based on those of his lord, Aymer de Valence. And they're therefore also an early example of the heraldic practice of differencing, whereby a coat of arms was deliberately designed to resemble another coat of arms in order to reflect a family, feudal or similar relationship. As I mentioned earlier, many of the documents here have an administrative or legal provenance. From the closing years of the 12th century, the Royal Chancery, the King's Secretariat in effect, began to take copies of letters and charters it had issued under the Great Seal. These copies were kept on rolls made up of parchment skins, or membranes as they're called, sewn end-to-end to make up a long strip, sometimes 40 feet long. The main series of chancery rolls, the close, patent and charter rolls, although not specifically heraldic records, do in fact contain much heraldic information. It just needs wheedling out. In England, it is only in the 15th century, at the very end of the Middle Ages, that we have definite examples of heralds granting arms. Nevertheless, the chancery rolls furnish us with examples of the king granting arms in the previous century. The charter roll for the ninth year of the reign of Edward III, C53-122, records that in 1335 the king, and I quote, out of affection, 
granted his own eagle crest, the part of a coat of arms that is shown above the shield, to his favourite, William de Montacute. And the same eagle can be seen on Montacute's new seal, seen here, E43493. In another example, this time from the Chancery Patent Rolls, C66-328, Richard II grants arms in 1389 to his liege man, John de Kingston, who had been challenged to a duel by a Frenchman, but was, was unable to accept because he was of inferior status and lacked a coat of arms. This is the earliest extant English grant of arms known. Edward III's grant to Montacute, he may recall, was of a crest, not of a shield of arms. The patent rolls also include copies of the letters patent incorporating the College of Arms in 1484 and 1555. Most of the royal commissions authorising heralds in the 16th and 17th centuries to go on county visitations when they recorded the arms, status and pedigrees of the local gentry, and the letters patent creating offices of arms right down to the present day. The Chancery Close Rolls likewise contain various snippets of heraldic information, including Henry V's attempt in 1417 to clamp down on the unauthorised wearing of coats of arms, and the reference is C54-267. Warrants authorising many of these royal grants can be found in the record series C81 and C82. In a few cases, they contain illustrations of the arms to be granted, so that the same arms could be accurately reproduced on the grant itself, as given to the grantee, and on the chancery enrolment. The warrants for Henry VI's grants of arms in 1449 to his two educational foundations, King's College Cambridge and Eton, are not, however, in C81, but are still attached to the charter roll, C53, on which they were later enrolled. And this is because the roll is still awaiting someone to fill in the blank spaces for the shields as a permanent visual record. I've often been tempted to do the same myself, just fill them in, but uh, I think there's a rule about colouring in documents. And you can just make out the charter roll uh, behind the two warrants. The charter roll sort of going this way, that's the long roll, and these have been sewn to the charter roll uh, so that the arms can be painted in. And as I say, it's still a blank space awaiting that. Published calendars containing precies of most of these chancery rolls can be found in the Map and Large Document Room and in the Library. And they're keyword searchable on the websites of the Institute of Historical Research, the section known as British History Online, and the University of Iowa for the pattern rolls. And both websites can be accessed here for free. Again, one might not expect to find the record of the King's Financial Office, the Medieval Exchequer, to yield much heraldic fruit. But it is surprising what is there if one looks. For example, the annual Exchequer accounts enrolled on the Pipe Rolls, E372, and copied onto the Chancellor's Rolls, E352, record that between the 21st of May and Michaelmas 1195, payment was made to a William Goldsmith for the engraving of Richard Lionheart's second great seal. Heraldically speaking, this dating is extremely important, since this seal provides the earliest evidence for the design of the Royal Arms of England, three lines pass and gardened, as seen here. Even doodles in the margins of exchequer rolls can reveal some interesting heraldry. Here we see Edward I and Philip IV of France eyeballing each other rather like boxers before a big match. I'll leave it to you to guess which is David Hay and which is Audley Harrison. They are sketched in the margin of a memoranda roll of 1297, where it refers to a truce in the war over Gascony. And both men are clearly identifiable by their heraldic devices, the lion, the lion passing gardens and the fleur-de-lis. The reference is E368-69. 
Well, sadly, such visual material is rare. A better place to find heraldry amongst the Exchequer records is in the household and wardrobe accounts of the king in record series E101. Here, for example, we find payment in 1284-85 to Robert, King of Heralds, at a time when the heralds in the royal household were listed in the financial records under minstrels. Expenses for plate, jewels, livery, cloth and so forth listed in the household and wardrobe accounts often include details of the heraldic decoration involved. Thus payments for Queen Margaret and the ladies of her chamber for their crossing to France in 1303 specify that their saddles are decorated with the arms of England, France, St George, Prince Edward and Louis, brother of the King of France. Another excellent source for information on the heralds in the Exchequer records is the issue or Pell Rolls in E403, containing payments made out of Crown revenues. A useful introduction to these is the three books by Frederick Devon entitled Issues of the Exchequer, since they provide miscellaneous examples translated from the Latin. Devon's books can be found in many university libraries and on the open shelves in the Map and Large Document Room and in the library. This is an entry in the 11th year of the reign of Henry VI, where payment is made to Gloucester Herald, who had been robbed whilst on a mission to France. All these payments had first to be authorised, and the initial warrants for their issues can be found in the record series E404. Many, unfortunately, were lost following the death of John Anstis, Guard King of Arms under George I. He had been allowed to take them out of the Tower of London, where they were kept, to his home in uh, Mortlake, near, near, near to here, where he had used them extensively for his book on the Order of the Garter. Uh, there they remained, in fact, for 11 months uh, after his death. Those that survived, at least for the Middle Ages, have, however, been more recently listed in the published List and Index volume, Supplementary Series Number 9. And here you will find dozens of references to late medieval heralds. But you need to look first under each monarch, then under O for his officers, and then under heralds. And don't be put off if you do not initially find much under heralds in the subject index, because there's far more material under each monarch, under officers. And copies of Anstis's book on the Garter, which is full of footnotes to these records, and the list and index volume in front of you, uh, can be found in the library. Well, some of the most important and most personal records of the Crown, such as treaties and doomsday book, were kept in the treasuries of the Exchequer for safekeeping. Such works were sometimes decorated with heraldry, as here, with Edward II's Charter of 1307, creating his favourite, Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall, E41-460. The opening initial features the royal arms and a shield of Gaveston impaling the chevrons of the Clare family, Gaveston's future wife. And you may recall we saw the Clare arms earlier in this talk. Even some of the chests holding the documents were emblazoned with heraldry, including the Bruce chest, E27-9, dating to 1360-61, which held records relating to the ransom of David II of Scotland. The National Archives holds only two medieval rolls of arms, that is, rolls or books containing illustrations or descriptions of arms. Both are in large illuminated volumes of miscellaneous records, originally kept in the office of the Duchy of Lancaster, DL42. The first is the Great Coucher Book of the Duchy, dating to about 1402. It is decorated with 16 beautifully executed banners of the arms of the honours of the Duchy, such as the one here. And the second, the Furness Coucher Book, dating to about a decade later, contains 84 shields of benefactors' arms. 
Before leaving the Middle Ages, mention should be made of the legal records of the period. Heralds do occasionally appear in the Chancery and Exchequer Courts, but by far the most important, heraldically speaking, is the Court of Chivalry. The most famous case to take place in this court was that between Richard Scroop and Robert Grosvenor, which began in 1385 over who had the better right to these very simple and beautiful arms, azure, a bend or, blue with a gold bend. The case is written in Old French, but there is a published transcript and translation in the library. One of the witnesses called to give evidence was the poet, Geoffrey Chaucer, whose deposition of the 15th of October 1386 is recorded in C47-6-2. The records of another court, the High Court of Admiralty, contain the oaths made by officers of arms at their creation. That of a king of arms, which you may remember is the most senior rank of a herald, states that he must know and register the arms and pedigrees of those in his province, a clear precursor to the herald's visitations I mentioned earlier. And just just to explain um, that some kings of arms had and still have jurisdiction over various parts of England and Wales. And these herald's oaths can be found in the Black Book of the Admiralty, HCA 12-1 which was lost for many years and only turned up at the beginning of the last century. Well, so much for the Middle Ages, the golden age of heraldry. Let's move swiftly on to the Tudors and Stuarts, a period that witnessed the rise of an astonishing new set of records, the state papers. These, in essence, were the letters, usually incoming, and papers of the secretaries of state, the chief executive ministers of the Crown in England and Wales. They cover just about every aspect of domestic and foreign policy, including a surprising number of references to the heralds and heraldry. Again, the best place to start looking is with the published calendars, which are accessible in the Map and Large Document Room and in the Library, and which can also be searched on the British History Online and State Papers Online websites, both of which are available for free here at Kew. I shall mention just three examples from the State Papers. The first in SP12 and SP70, refers to the very real concern of William Cecil, Elizabeth I's Secretary of State, to the overt use by Mary Queen of Scots of the royal arms of England. This was seen by many as a clear indication of her ambitions towards the English throne. The second is taken from the private papers of Sir Joseph Williamson, Keeper of the State Papers from 1661 to 1702. Williamson had a particular interest in heraldry and bequeathed a number of his heraldic documents to the State Paper Office. They are now in State Papers 9, SP9. They include 15 original Tudor and Stuart grants of arms, including this one, a book of knighthood written by Thomas Wall, Windsor Herald, to Henry VIII, and a collection of heraldic and genealogical notes that once belonged to the herald, William Riley, who died in 1667. I wasn't going to mention this bit in the next bit, but I will, because Riley was both a herald at the College of Arms and a keeper of the public records in the days before the Public Record Office. And Clive Cheeseman, Richmond Herald and current chairman of the Friends of the National Archives, who's with us this afternoon, has written about Riley and other heralds who worked with the Public Records Office in, and I've got a blank here, issue of the Friends of the National Archives magazine. About 2000, was it? Yes. But you'll find an article there on heralds and the Public Record Office in that issue of the Friends magazine. My third example from the State Papers is taken from Oliver Cromwell's Irish accounts for 1659 to 1656, and it can be found in State Papers Ireland, SP 63. Well, not only does it contain a rare contemporary coloured portrait of Cromwell, but also a rare contemporary coloured depiction of the arms of the Protectorate, seen here at the top, which is a strange mixture of royalist and republican heraldry, with Cromwell's arms, that's a white lion on a black shield, 
prominently placed at the centre. And I did notice that was a very small depiction. So uh, here's one I prepared earlier. So I just passed that round. You'll be able to see that coat of arms uh, better. It is a curious mixture with the crown above the um, Republican shield. Notice the royal, the royal arms of England and Scotland have gone. Notice the royal unicorn of the Stuarts has gone. But notice the lion on the left is crowned. And they are prominently placed, as I say, right smack in the centre is the arms of Cromwell himself, making quite a statement. And also shown on this folio, this membrane, are the personal arms of Cromwell's son, Henry, uh, who was then stationed in Ireland. During the early modern period, the Exchequer continued to safeguard important treaties and documents. We've looked at state papers now looking at the Exchequer in the early modern period. And three are especially noteworthy for their heraldry. The first is from Henry VII's 1504 foundation indenture of his Lady Chapel in Westminster Abbey, E33-1. And as you can see, it is richly decorated with Tudor arms and badges, unambiguous dynastic hieroglyphics seeking to confirm the legitimacy of Henry's usurping house. My second example is this book of documents, E36-113, from 1521, relating to St George's Chapel, Windsor. On this page, the statutes of the Order of the Garter are preceded by two paintings. On the left, within the Garter, are the arms of Henry VIII, a sovereign of the Order, St George impaling the royal arms. And on the right, again surrounded by the Garter, are the red and white roses, respective badges of Henry's parents. They are shown here en soleil, that is, with sun, sun, uh, in front of a sunburst, and joined at the stem, which issues from a sunburst, a badge associated with Windsor, which is, of course, the spiritual home. The chapel is the spiritual home of the Order of the Garter. And my third example from the Exchequer Records of the early modern period is this superbly illuminated 1605 ratification of the Treaty of London, which ended the war between England and Spain after nearly 20 years. The treaty ratification was presented to James I by Philip III of Spain, whose arms here are encircled by a collar of the Order of the Fleece, the Golden Fleece. And the ratification could be found amongst the diplomatic documents in E30. A new class of records to appear during this period was that of the Lord Chamberlain's office, which helped look after the affairs of the royal household, including major royal and state occasions, such as christenings, weddings and funerals, and other events in which the heralds and heraldry very often featured. The expenses listed here in the Lord Chamberlain's registers for Elizabeth I's funeral, LC2-4-4, include payments to John Parr for embroidering the great banner and a tabard of the royal arms, and to Leonard Fryer for making the royal helm and crest, a shield crowned and encircled by the garter, and a sword. All of these were carried by the heralds in Elizabeth's funeral procession, as depicted in this contemporary illumination which is now in the British Library, and this is a, this is a much longer document. Here you just see three of the heralds, but each of the items which they carry, the, you can find them in those financial accounts and exactly how much they cost and who was paid to produce them. So it's a rather nice way of tying up two documents in two separate institutions. The accession of William of Orange in 1688, the Union with Scotland in 1707, the coming of the Hanoverians in 1714 and the Union with Ireland in 1801. You can see we're racing through the time now, so don't, you needn't worry too much all resulted in changes to the royal arms as depicted on government seals and official documents. This is perhaps most vividly demonstrated over time 
by the beautifully illuminated Treasury Commissions, appointing Lord Commissioners and now in the Treasury Files, T40. Redesigns of the Royal Arms, in anticipation of the Act of Union with Ireland, were approved by the King in, in Council in November 1800. They are recorded in the Registers of the Privy Council, PC2, and duplicated in a new class of records, those of the Home Office, which, along with the Foreign Office, replaced the old State Papers Office in 1782. And the new designs include the earliest known official depictions of the present Union flag. You can see that at the top. Uh, the Home Office reference is HO38-9. So these were actually produced before the Act of Union in January of 1801 for a ratification by the King. Applications for grants or augmentations of arms, that's sort of honours in arms, and for changes of names and arms during the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries can also be found amongst the State Papers, SP44, and records of the Home Office, HO45 and HO142. This is a copy of the Royal Licence, dated 18th of July 1775, to Lord de Ferrers, granting him the right to combine the swan and ostrich feathers badges of his ancestor, Thomas Woodstock, Duke Gloucester, and use them on a ducal coronet as his family crest. Another example is the draft of a royal licence drawn up by Garter King of Arms and amended by 10 Downing Street, granting to the father of the famous explorer, Captain John Speak, certain augmentations, heraldic honours, to his arms, including the word Nile, the source of which Speak had discovered. And unusually for a man of his status, he was allowed heraldic supporters. The reference is HO45-8568. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, the Lord Chamberlain continued to record payments for the Herald's participation in and the production of heraldry for royal and state occasions. They can be found in the registers in LC2. Herald painters were paid for various items for the state funerals of William Pitt in 1778 and of Lord Nelson in 1806 when this plan of St Paul's Cathedral was drawn up. The registers also include Clarence King of Arms' expenses for escorting Queen Caroline's body to Brunswick, where she was buried in 1821, and the cost of new tabards for the heralds of England, Scotland and Ireland at coronations, such as that of William IV in 1831. Further payments to the heralds, including their paltry salaries, can be found in the treasury books and papers, many of which have been calendared and are available on the open shelves in the map and large document room and in the library. I think the heralds don't earn very much more than the sums you see there. Heraldic sketches for the decoration of Sir Charles Barry's new Houses of Parliament, begun in the 1840s, can be found amongst the files of the old Ministry of Works, and I thought you'd like to see an example. The 18th and 19th centuries also witnessed the rise of Britain as an imperial power, exporting its heraldry to the far-flung corners of the globe and forcing the government at home to keep control, or at least a central record, of the arms and devices borne by its overseas possessions. Many colonial seals during this period depicted the royal arms along with the local seascape or landscape, such as here on George III's seal for the Bahamas in CO5-285. From the late 1860s, the Admiralty required governors of colonies to fly the Union flag charged with the badge of their colony at its centre and for ships of those possessions to use the same flag badge in the fly of the Blue Ensign. Many of these flag badges would arrive from the colonist's seal, such as the ship design of the Bahamas, as seen here. You can see how the, the badge has been basically taken from, from the seal of the colony, and that happened in probably the majority of the colonies. 
Approved flags were painted into an official record held by the Colonial Office, CO325-54, such as here for Canada. This is a remarkable document which we keep in the safe room showing the various flags of the colonies uh, in, in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, so this record was kept, and also the flag badges were regularly published by the Admiralty for identification at sea. And a copy of this publication can be seen on the stairs up to the Map and Large document room. So there you have the, the badges, and in the case of uh, Canada, the, well, at least the Canadian provinces, and Jamaica, the, the actual arms of those colonies. Not all colonial badges were heraldic, and some were very poorly designed, containing, as you can see, far too much naturalistic detail. Indeed, Queen Victoria's reign witnessed an all-time low for heraldic art. Some of the worst examples can be seen on the 3,000 or so often gaudily illuminated addresses to the Queen on the occasions of her golden and diamond jubilees in 1887 and 1897, respectively, and these can be found in PP1. A particularly poor example is this version of the Royal Arms, taken from the Loyal Address of the University of St Andrews in 1887. So what precisely has the Scottish unicorn said to the English lion to make him look quite so glum? Uh, Answers to me on the back of a clean £5 note. He really does look very, very sad there. Some of the commemorative heraldry was, however, much better, such as seen here on the beautiful scroll presented by the Order of St John of Jerusalem in 1897. And I believe it's hoped to digitise some of these addresses in time for the Diamond Jubilee of the present Queen in 2012. During the 20th century, files from the Home Office and Treasury Solicitor have much to say on the vexed question of imperial jurisdiction, the seemingly interminable argument between the three heraldic authorities, that's the College of Arms for England and Wales, Lion Court in Scotland, and the Office of Arms in Dublin, over their rights and responsibilities in relation to each other. The debate opened in 1907 and rumbled on for the next half century. The files, especially TS 27-41, contain some pretty heated correspondence, especially between the College and Lion Court. But, acrimony aside, the papers include valuable examples of precedence, excellent background histories of the three heraldic offices, and detailed explanations of their respective roles. I should just add that... Uh, I think it would be true to say most of those arguments have now been settled if the, um, the amount and thickness of the files here at the National Archives is anything to go by, and certainly there's much better relations. And, of course, the Office of Arms in Dublin, Ulster was joined with Norroy to become Norroy and Ulster King of Arms here at the College of Arms in London. And there's a separate heraldic authority in Southern Ireland. The St Andrew Society of Scotland took part in the same debate. It also lobbied the Home Office, Scottish Office, War Office, and in particular the Royal Mint, with a series of letters and petitions for Scots heraldry to be included on coins of the realm, and these can be found in the respective files. The Society eventually wore down the mint, and in 1937 and 1953, shillings depicting Scots heraldry were finally produced, a case, I suppose, of suck it and see. Think about that one, OK? Original designs for new coinage, containing much excellent heraldry, can be found in Mint 20. The Honourable Society of Kimradorian, in its turn, campaigned hard for Welsh representation on coins and on the Royal Arms, Royal Standard and National Flag. In this document from the Privy Council Registers, PC2, for the 11th of March 1953, the Queen approved a new Royal Badge for the greater honour and distinction of the Principality. 
War Office, W.O., Admiralty, A.D.M., and Air Ministry, Air, files of the 20th century often include draft designs and formal approval of Army, Navy, and Air Force badges. This is a black-and-white photograph from record series Air 2 of the badge of 15 Bomber Squadron, depicting a Heinz head, and it's signed by Edward VIII. And the squadron then flew Hawker Hind aircraft, hence the Heinz head. The 20th century was, of course, dominated by two world wars. The wartime file from the Air Ministry, Air 20-3858, gives the strong impression that Chester Herald at the College of Arms was blissfully unaware there was a war on. Despite the Blitz, Chester bombarded the government with requests for RAF banners. On the 11th of July 1941, the Ministry fought back with a two-sentence reply, and I quote, It is the general opinion here that this is not the time to use material and labour to make banners, but that the matter should be considered after the war, when plenty of both will become available. I think this is quite a reasonable view to take in the present circumstances. In other words, there's a war on, and you can know what you can do with your banners. Records of the past half-century include recently released cabinet minutes on what royal cipher or arms to put on pillar boxes without offending the Scots, for whom Her Majesty is not Queen Elizabeth II, also authorisation for new flags for new Commonwealth countries, the Herald's role in Sir Winston Churchill's state funeral in 1965, heraldic designs for the investiture of the Prince of Wales in 1969, and what the government did, or rather didn't do, with ten redundant, six-foot-high royal beasts produced for the coronation and now in Canada, and copies of these can be seen today in nearby Kew Gardens. Well, I shall finish with this image, a 1953 coronation poster from good old British Rail. It features a magnificent rendition of the modern royal arms, colourful, vibrant, well-proportioned and instantly recognisable, a classic example of good heraldry. But who would have thought of looking for such an excellent example in the records of BR, or for that matter, TNA? I have this afternoon only scratched at the surface of the 800 years or so of heraldry contained within the National Archives, and even then, to save time, I have restricted my examples to British and colonial heraldry. Nevertheless, I hope I have given you a taste of what heraldic riches can be found within these walls if you are prepared to search in a variety of places. Like me, you'll be surprised at what you find. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 25th of November 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.